Bite-Sized Birthday Biography Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, October 3rd, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Karl von Osetsky, German anti-Nazi journalist and the only Nobel Prize laureate to die in Nazi custody. This one was an outrage. It made me so mad. If there's any greater injustice than a person who dedicated their life to making something better being forgotten, it's them being killed for doing that great noble thing. Yesterday's Human in History, Major Robert Henry Lawrence Jr. was our first human in history since we started on September 10th, whose life was ended abruptly due to an accident. Today's Human in History, Karl von Osetsky was tortured by Nazis and died as a result of his mistreatment for daring to warn the world about Hitler and the Third Reich. I can think of few greater injustices, and as his name was very much lost to the sands of time, it is my ultimate honor to talk about the great works that he did in his 48 years. Let's start by dissecting his name, Karl von Osetsky. The von would normally indicate some noble blood. Occasionally, non-nobility would use it as a preposition to indicate their heritage, as in Karl of Osetsky or Karl from Osetsky. But there is no city or region by that name, so it has a more suggested noble connotation to it. So was Karl of noble blood or wasn't he? The explanation that he gave of its derivation suggests that he was not a blue blood boy. Apparently, one of his Polish ancestors had been in the Lancer Cavalry under one of the electors of Brandenburg. An elector... Kurfürst auf Deutsch was basically a prince in the Holy Roman Empire who had the right to participate in the election of the emperor. So this elector of Brandenburg got stuck with an empty war chest, meaning he had no gold with which to pay his troops. So in a desperate attempt to avoid mass desertion, he conferred upon two entire regiments titles of nobility, allowing every man there to now use the noble Vaughn in their name. That's a pretty sweet racket, isn't it? I can't pay you for your work, but here's a Vaughn to make you feel better. So it appears that he did have a noble title, but the honor came via desperation, not lineage. So Karl was born in Hamburg, Germany in 1889, named after his father, Karl Ignatius von Osetsky. Uh, dad was a Protestant stenographer who worked for a lawyer and then for the first mayor of Hamburg, Senator Max Pradol. Karl Sr. died when little Karl was two, leaving him with his devoutly Catholic mother, whose only wish in life was to see Carl Jr. become a monk or a priest. He was raised a Catholic. He was baptized and confirmed at St. Michael's Church when he was six. And when he was nine, his mother remarried Gustav Walther, a social democrat, and Gustav's political leanings would make a huge impact on young Carl. School was not really his cup of tea. He dropped out before he finished a real school. Real school was a secondary school that you can find not only in Germany, but also in Liechtenstein and Switzerland. It's the middle slot in a three-tier education system, with Hauptschul being beneath real school and gymnasium being the highest. I had no idea that's where the word came from. So any kid can get into a Hauptschul in Germany. There's no real like requirements. But if you want to go to a real school, you have to have certain grades. And if you want to go to a gymnasium, you need to have really good grades. 
So Carl's acceptance into a real school would indicate that he had pretty decent grades. So his dropping out before his completion at age 17 is a bit confusing. But regardless, after a brief stint as an administrative civil servant in Hamburg, he jumped right into the career that would cement both his legacy and his death, journalism. At the age of 24, he married Maud Lickfield Woods, a suffragette from Manchester who had been the product of a union between a British colonial officer and the great-granddaughter of an Indian princess in Hyderabad, India. Whether or not they were married or if she was a love child, I was not able to uncover. Carl and Maud would go on to have one daughter named Rosalind. So Carl gets his first gig at a weekly paper of the Democratic Union called Das Freivolk, the Free People, in 1913. His first article, published on July 5th, was a critical response to a pro-military court decision in Erfurt, a city in central Germany. His article elicited a negative reaction from the Prussian War Ministry, calling his article, quote, an insult to the common good. He was even summoned to court on May 22nd, 1914, to pay a fine for writing the article. This would be the first in a long line of corrupt and straight-up evil German officials that he would enrage during his short lifetime. So Germany at this time was in the final five years of being what was called the German Empire. It was also called the Imperial Empire. And they were under the rule of the last Kaiser and King of Prussia, Wilhelm II. Wilhelm was big into German militarism, which Karl was adamantly opposed to, leading Karl to declare himself a pacifist. This mentality for Karl was further cemented when he was drafted against his will into the German army during World War I. He was horrified at the brutality of war, and this further deepened his commitment to pacifism and democracy and turned him staunchly against fascism and militarism. Following the end of World War I, Germany became the Wehrmacht Republic, a.k.a. the German Reich. And this was essentially an attempt to rebrand this warmongering nation, and it lasted from 1919 to 1933 when Hitler came to power. Germany had agreed to the Treaty of Versailles at the disastrous end of World War I, agreeing basically to abstain from rearmament or the restocking of their military supplies and the amassing of new troops. Germany had no intention of abiding by this and still butthurt about losing a war that they started and having to cover the bill for it. They began to stockpile weapons and brainwash and indoctrinate troops. In essence, they were gearing up for World War I, the sequel. Of course, they had to do this in a covert manner. So in 1921, the Wehrmacht Republic started something called Arbeitskommandos, or the work squads, led by Major Bruno Ernst Buchrucker. On paper, it was a civil works project comprised of skilled and unskilled laborers, but in actuality, it was Germany's way around the troop limit that had been set by the Treaty of Versailles. The Black Reichswehr, God, just that name sounds evil, as it was known, uh, may have been headed by Major Buchrocker, but it was actually being run by a secret department in the German state military known as Sondergruppe R. Sondergruppe R was made up of four German officials who would all go in totally opposite directions once Hitler rose to power. First was Kurt von Hammerstein Eckward, who hated Hitler, and he was part of a bunch of attempts to overthrow him. And despite being forcibly enlisted into the Third uh, Reich's uh, Gestapo branch, he tried to warn as many Jewish people as he could about what was happening. So he is kind of a bad guy, but he's not the worst of the worst. The second guy was... Eugene Ott, uh, he just ate up the Nazi propaganda with a spoon. He served Hitler during World War II, and he was even awarded for his dedication to the Nazi party. 
Um, the third member of Sondergroup R was Fedor von Bock. He was another obedient little Nazi who led invasions of Poland and France, and he had a pretty good fascist run until him and his family were killed by strafing British fire bombers in 1945 while driving home. The last member of Sondergroup R was Kurt von Schleicher, the last chancellor of Germany before Hitler came to power. He was murdered by the SS during the Night of the Long Knives in 1934. That was a three-day event in which Hitler, uh, egged on by his right-hand men Hermann Göring and Heinrich Himmler, ordered the executions of political rivals and opponents. So, backed by this bunch of darlings, the Black Reichswehr developed a nasty little habit of murdering anyone that they thought was working for or informing for the Military Inter-Allied Commission of Control. This was a post-World War I enforcement organization consisting of the U.S., France, Italy, Japan, and the British Empire as the Allied powers, and Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and Turkey as the Central Powers. One of the stipulations of this commission was that all factories, funds, or facilities that had been used for manufacturing weapons or anything military-related had to be switched over to commercial production only. The Black Reichswehr was obviously not only not going to do that, they were going to do the exact opposite, and they started assassinating anyone who said anything. This commission sputtered to a slow death in Germany on February 28, 1927. These killings by the Black Reichswehr were being given the okay by the Femme Gerti, literally meaning the secret court, which held quote-unquote trials in which the person in question was not invited to or even made aware that they were on trial until their guilty verdict was decided. Spoiler alert, they were all found guilty. After the Femme Gerti decided whoever it was was guilty of snitching on them to the Military Inter-Allied Commission of Control, a hitman was dispatched to murder the unsuspecting victim. Word of these killings began to leak out, and Carl began to write about them. Carl ramped up his commitment to pacifism and democracy, becoming the secretary of the German Peace Society, as well as the leader of a small, offshoot political party known as the Homeless Left, the name coming from the fact they didn't really belong in any established political house. The homeless left did not align themselves with any of the traditional leftist options like communism or the social democrats, which they felt were too eager to go back to the old way of doing things, politically speaking. Carl was vocal in his writings and also in his day-to-day political activism that there was a heavy conflict of interest in the members of Emperor Wilhelm II's military and judicial cabinets also being involved in the Wehrmacht Republic. Carl believed correctly, as history has shown us, that these men were not committed to the construction of a democratic state, and they would flip on their political allegiances as soon as the opportunity presented itself. He further drove his point home in 1923 when he published a study showing that German judges were very quick to impose harsh, brutal, even draconian sentences on leftists who committed political or mild social crimes, while extreme acts of violence committed by the right often went with little to no censure or consequence. In 1927, Karl became the editor of Die Weltbühne, or The World Stage, a weekly German magazine that covered everything from politics to the arts. In March of 1927, just after he accepted his new post, a writer at the magazine named Berthold Jacob wrote an article in which he blasted the Reichswehr for supporting paramilitary groups. Since Karl was the editor, uh, he was tried for libel, even though it was a true story, and he was thrown in prison for a month. 
Two years later, in 1929, a writer on the paper named Walter Kreiser would drop a bombshell, and in his scandalous expose, he enlightened the public on the development and training of a secret specialty Air Force unit out of Reichswehr called Abeltung M, or the M section, which was quietly training Air Force pilots in Germany and the Soviet Union, and this was a clear violation of the Treaty of Versailles. In a very telling snapshot of just how profoundly corrupt the entire German government was at this point, both Kreiser and Karl were brought before the examining magistrate of the Supreme Court for writing this article. It took two years, but the Supreme Court finally indicted the two men for treason and espionage in 1931. On what grounds, you may ask? On the grounds of drawing international political attention to the subversive activities of the German military. The court asserted that even states' actions which violated international peace treaties needed to be kept secret. Walter and Carl were arrested on this totally bogus charge, which was clearly the government's attempt to shut up Die Weltbühne once and for all. Carl and Walter's attorneys pointed out that the information they had published was true and that there was even proof as there had been allocations made for it in the national budget. The state prosecutors countered that because it was a state secret, Walter should not have written about it, and Carl, as editor, should not have allowed it to be published. They were both found guilty, surprise, and sentenced to 18 months in prison. Walter smartly fled the country, but Carl stayed, and he served his time, being let out at the end of 1932 for Christmas amnesty. This is the point in the story when I wish Carl would have done something different. I wish he would have taken his wife and his daughter and fled. I wish he would have gone somewhere safe, and continued his work from there. But he stayed. And when asked later why he did not escape with most of his fellow anti-Nazi journalists, he said that he needed to continue to write from inside the country, saying, quote, a man speaks with a hollow voice from across the border. In 1932, right after being released from prison, he released a fiery article saying, quote, Anti-Semitism is akin to nationalism and its best ally. They dominate the German domestic political picture. They are the barred organs of fascism, whose pseudo-revolutionary shrieks drown out the softer tremulo of social reaction. Today there is a strong smell of blood in the air. Literary anti-Semitism forges the moral weapon for murder. Sturdy and honest lads will take care of the rest. A few weeks after this article was published, Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany. His appointment caused most of the anti-government writers to flee the country. Karl's biographer, Wilhelm von Sternberg, said that Karl was probably planning on escaping, but he thought that he had a few more days to get his family together and formulate a plan. But he didn't. He didn't have time. He drastically and devastatingly underestimated how quickly the Nazi party was sweeping down on journalistic opposition to the Third Reich. On February 28, 1933, Karl was arrested at his house by the Nazis and put into Spandau prison in Berlin under protective custody. After a short time, he was moved to the Esterwegen concentration camp, a camp for political and journalistic opponents to the Third Reich. Karl was moved around between concentration camps during the next five years, enduring ritualistic food deprivation and torture from the guards. A Red Cross representative visited Karl there and made the following notes about him. Karl was a trembling, deadly pale something, a creature that appeared to be without feeling, one eye swollen, teeth knocked out, dragging a broken, badly healed leg, a human being who had reached the uttermost limits of what could be born. In 1934, a campaign was started, possibly by writer Berthold Jacob, to ensure the awarding of the 1935 Nobel Peace Prize to Karl. 
Jacob brought up the idea to his colleagues at the German League for Human Rights, and one of them, Helmut von Gerlach, had worked with Karl at Die Weltbühne, and he began a letter-writing campaign from his home base in Paris, reaching out to humanitarian organizations and famous figures around the world, including Albert Einstein, who supported Karl's nomination. Even Time magazine got behind Karl, saying, If ever a man worked, fought, and suffered for peace, it is the sickly little German Karl von Osetsky. For nearly a year, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee has been swamped with petitions from all shades of socialists, liberals, and literary folk generally, nominating Karl von Osetsky for the 1935 Peace Prize. Their slogan, send the Peace Prize into the concentration camp. So what was the problem? Well, the problem was that the Peace Prize is given out in Norway, and during World War II, Norway was trying really hard to stay neutral, basically not to piss off the Germans. This, of course, didn't amount to a hill of beans, as Nazi Germany just ended up invading them anyways in 1940. But Norway was scared, and they hemmed and hawed a lot on awarding a prize to someone that Nazi Germany was insisting was a political traitor. One Nazi newspaper straight up said that they hoped Norway knew better than to, quote, provoke the German people by rewarding this traitor to our nation. We hope the Norwegian government is sufficiently familiar with the ways of the world. So the Nobel Peace Prize Committee chickened out, totally groveling under the shiny black heel of an SS boot, and they made some lame excuse about, oh, we decided not to give out any peace prizes this year because there's too much violence in Africa and political instability in Asia. Like, what? The next year, in 1936, the committee, under much international pressure and backlash, relented and awarded Karl the 1935 Nobel Peace Prize. And this just sent Hitler through the roof, and he straight up through a temper tantrum. He branded Karl a traitor, and he called the award an insult to the whole country of Germany and all the German people. He said there could be no mention of the award in any German newspaper. He threatened to cut off all relations with Norway, and he made a sweeping declaration that no Germans would ever again be allowed to accept any Nobel Prizes. This last law stayed in effect until World War II ended, and a bunch of German scientists were finally allowed to collect their prizes. All this uh, foot-stomping made some of the committee pretty nervous. The foreign minister resigned over the decision to give Karl the award, and King Hakon of Norway made it a point to stay away from this particular ceremony, despite having attended every other one. The Nazis ordered Karl to not accept the Nobel Peace Prize, but Karl did not obey, making the statement that, after much consideration, I have made the decision to accept the Nobel Peace Prize, which has fallen to me. I cannot share the view put forward to me by the representatives of the secret state police that in doing so, I exclude myself from German society. The Nobel Peace Prize is not a sign of an internal political struggle, but an understanding between peoples. As the recipient of this prize, I will do my best to encourage this understanding, and as a German, I will always bear in mind Germany's justifiable interest in Europe. I count myself as belonging to a party of sensible Europeans who regard the armaments race as insanity. If the German government will permit, I will only be too pleased to go to Norway to receive the prize. Well, the German government would not permit. Surprise! Uh, Karl was denied a visa to Norway, and due to the gradual turning of all international eyes towards this journalist in a concentration camp, the deathly ill, horrifically abused, tuberculosis-ridden, post-heart attack Karl was moved in May of 1936 from the concentration camp to West End Hospital in Berlin, but he was kept under round-the-clock Gestapo watch. The amount of torture he underwent in the camps isn't something that he ever went into detail with, but during the 1937 Time interview that he did from his hospital bed, uh, there was this really creepy interaction in which uh, he is described as being hollow-eyed and pale. 
knowing that if he was imprisoned again, it would mean his death. And during this time, Karl actually praised the Nazi government. And anyone that knew Karl knew these were not his words. He had spent his whole life fighting fascism. These were the words of a broken and dying man who had endured the unendurable and was now faced with assassination and possibly even threats about his daughter and his wife. As if living this life was not enough, a swindler pretending to be an attorney offered to collect the $40,000 of Nobel Prize money for Carl. The swindler took the money and then laundered it and kept most of it for himself until he was taken to court in 1948 and forced to pay it back. But it didn't make much of a difference at this point as Carl died on May 4th, 1938 at the age of 48. This was one of the hardest stories to write thus far for me. The injustice and the brutality is simply heartbreaking, but what I found myself getting even more infuriated at during this research process was how many people knew what was going on. The Red Cross, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, other committees, famous people all around the world knew about Carl. They knew where he was, therefore they knew there were concentration camps. People knew, so many, many people knew that there were concentration camps and nothing was done. America didn't even get off its butt and try to be helpful until Pearl Harbor, which is the most, well, I was just waiting for him to say something to me thing I've ever heard in my life. Shame on us. Shame on any government or organization that knew and didn't do everything in their power to put a stop to this. Shame on any person who stays quiet and still when there's work to be done. There were 6 million Jews killed that we know of. 6 million. The number could be way higher. It's not like the Nazis kept great records. And that doesn't take into account the 3 million Soviet POWs, the 7 million Soviet civilians, the almost 2 million non-Jewish Poles, the million Serbians and homosexuals and Romas and disabled people that were killed. These are staggering numbers. And the U.S., I'm especially hard on my country because it's my country and I feel responsible for it. The U.S. waited for eight years, eight years, Hitler came to power and started this nightmare in 1933. We declared war December of 1941 before we decided, hey, maybe this does concern us a bit. Unbelievable. This didn't happen overnight. This didn't take, take weeks. This took years. Years. I think about Uncle Max's line in Sound of Music when he says, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Just make sure it doesn't happen to you. That was the mentality of so many countries for so many years and so many people. Children and babies died horrific deaths because of our apathy. I really hope that we've learned that there is no other, that's a false concept, and what is done to one is done to all. It is no one's job to topple fascist dictatorships. It's everyone's job to do their part by protecting and supporting democracies. Whew. Okay. My sources today were Time, the Nobel Prize website, and Wikipedia. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday it's hard to call it a celebration, I guess, but our birthday remembrance, shall we say, of the birth and life of Karl von Osetsky. Please join me tomorrow when we celebrate the birth and life of Chief Lucy Tahia Aids, the first female chief of the Khan Nation. See you then.